My name's Ian. If you're a visitor here, I'm the, the minister of the church here. And um, in, the, in the last few weeks we've been going through a series, and today's the last one. We've been thinking about stories that Jesus told. Uh, many of you will know that Jesus, uh, a lot of Jesus' teaching was in parables. So we've been uh, picking different ones and trying to work out what they mean for us today. And we've reached the last one today. Uh, next week's our carol service, and we've got some other different things going on. But we've um, reached this story that Emma read to us, uh, the parable of the ten virgins or the ten bridesmaids. Um, and we're going to have a look at uh, this parable this afternoon. Now, my daughter, one of my daughters, I won't tell you which one, see if you can guess which daughter had a swimming lesson two or three weeks ago. The lesson is for 30 minutes. And on the way, driving in the car to drop her off, she said, Dad, don't pick me up at the usual time. Uh, I want you to come half an hour later than you normally come. So, a little bit perplexed. And, why, why? Why do you want me to come half an hour later? Well, I have here in my back all my beauty treatments. And she did. She had a rucksack full of shampoo, conditioner, lotions of every kind. And she said, today, after I finish my lesson, I'm going to have a beauty session. So I drove back home and I hadn't been in the house less than five minutes and the phone rang and it was the swimming baths. And uh, they put Bethany on, Dad, 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 you need to come right away. I've forgotten my swimming costume. So you have a whole sack of beauty treatments, towel, brushes, but not the main thing that you need completely unprepared to actually swim. The feeling of being unprepared is, is, is not really a good one, is it? Uh, but it can happen all the time. I, I, I was just messing around Googling this whole subject and came across even a Facebook group for people, and, and it's called, I can relate to this, being unprepared and feeling under pressure at the drive through and there was one guy called Jim in America who said this. Where I live, there's a KFC, a McDonald's, and a Hungry Jack, all in one spot. And sometimes I forget where I am when I order. Yeah, being unprepared. You've got to be ready. There's people behind you. But sometimes being unprepared can be more serious than that, can't it? In 1845, there was a uh, an Englishman, uh, the Rear Admiral Sir John Franklin. And he set out on a mapping expedition. I don't know if you're familiar with the geography, but off the coast of Canada and Greenland, there are a lot of islands. And uh, it's known as the Northwest Passage. And there were two steamships in his expedition. And they had over 130 men on board. And they set off to try and map some of the area. And they prepared by stocking the ship with a library of over a thousand books and, and apparently three years' worth of supplies in tins. They sailed first to Greenland and then they began to navigate through the islands of the Northwest Passage. And unfortunately, their ships got stuck, frozen solid in the ice. And they also realised that the supplier of the tins had not soldered the lids on correctly 
and many of the suppliers were either they'd gone off or they were lead poisoned with the solder that they'd used. So here they are, stuck in the ice, with plenty to read and nothing to eat. Unprepared. Unprepared. You could subtitle our thoughts this afternoon from this story of the ten bridesmaids. Be prepared. I think that's the motto of the uh, Boy Scouts, isn't it? Be prepared. Dib, dib, dib. I think I was in the Boy Scouts one, one time. Obviously when I was a lot younger than I am now. I'm looking around for the clicker rich. You're going to do it. Okay. I'll leave you to guess. Um, that would be a great game to play, wouldn't it? For you to guess the slide. Well, this parable is about a Jewish wedding. There are ten bridesmaids in this story. Um, they're, well, they're called ten virgins and are the young girls. Apparently, we'll, we'll talk about the story more in a, in a little while, they, they, they would often have ten, and they would, these would be young girls, 13, 14 years old, kind of rounded up from the village to form a, a sort of welcoming party for the bridegroom. We're told that five were foolish, five were wise, and the difference between them was that five were prepared and ready, and five weren't. Now, the, the context for this parable is the fact that Jesus is speaking about his personal return to this world one day. Christians often refer to this as the second coming of Christ. We're about to celebrate, in a way, the first coming of Jesus as a baby in a, a manger somewhere outside of Bethlehem. But the Bible often speaks about the second coming of Jesus and the fact that he will come again one day, visibly, personally, and suddenly, and with great glory. So this parable is about really being prepared or ready for that second coming of Jesus. I, I, haven't, I don't know about you, some of you who go to church regularly, I haven't heard many sermons in church that refer directly to the second coming of Christ. I'm not sure why that is. Um, but the question I suppose we're going to ask today is in the light of the fact that Jesus is coming back one day, the question has to be, are you ready for that? Now, it would be really helpful if, if you've got one of the, the Red Church Bibles, just have it op open uh, on your lap there. We're going to uh, look at uh, a, few, a few things here. It would be good if you can follow in, in, in the verses that Emma read to us in verse 1, uh, this is Jesus speaking, he's telling this story, and he begins by saying, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins. At that time. It's an interesting turn of phrase, that, because Jesus uses a lot of parables, in Matthew's Gospel particularly, and they often say, now the kingdom of heaven is like, and then he'll kind of describe some aspect of the kingdom of God. Now the kingdom of God is like. But here he says, at that time, so there's already, even in those first three verses, a kind of time difference. The kingdom of God now, Jesus has come the first time, and now he's kind of projecting into the future and saying, then, on that day, this is what the kingdom of heaven will be like. Jesus speaks a lot about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And chapter 24 is really all about this subject of the second coming. We're very close to the end of Jesus' life here. 
um, the disciples with Jesus are in Jerusalem and there's only a few days to go to the Last Supper, Jesus being betrayed, the cross, the resurrection. This is the final week, if you like, of Jesus' life before the crucifixion. And um, I, w- I wasn't sure how, how to do this. I, if, if I'm honest, I, I've been so taken up with chapter 24 my preparation, I wish this morning that we were looking at chapter 24 and we had another week to look at this parable. So we won't spend too long, but I just want to show you something. I, I think this chapter is one of the most intriguing chapters in the Bible. And the, and the reason it's fascinating, I hope we can get this. I, I haven't even done a slide because I couldn't really think of how to do this on a slide. The reason it's fascinating, chapter 24, is because it mingles in a very awesome way a kind of sense of what is now passing, the transience of the present moment, the fading glory of kind of now, with a sense of this transcendent future. And those two things are sort of mingled in chapter 24 in a very incredible way. So let let me try and show you what I mean and then hopefully that will be a good prelude to just looking at the parable and drawing some conclusions from it. Just look back with me and um, over the page. At the end of chapter 23, Jesus is looking out over the city of Jerusalem. And there's some amazing words here. Verse 37. Jesus, I think in some Bibles it says the lament over Jerusalem. Jesus is looking out over the city and he says these words, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There is a, I'm sure you would agree, there's a great poignancy in those words, isn't there? I came to you. In fact, I came for you. I longed to do you good, not harm. But you refused. You, you didn't know who I was. And those, those words, uh, how often I long to gather your children together to protect you, to care for you, but you were not willing. What, what Jesus is impl- more than implying is that here is the Son of God come into the world. The very people who he comes to not only do they not recognise him but they reject him and uh, less than a week later Jesus is hanging on a cross outside of the city the ultimate rejection and Jesus connects that rejection with their downfall your house is left to you desolate you you had opportunity to receive and embrace the son of God and, and you missed his coming your house is left to you desolate. Now the other Gospels shed some light. This, this uh, chapter 24, some elements of it are repeated in other Gospels. And the other Gospels shed light on what happens next. They head east, out of the city, 
across the valley and up onto the Mount of Olives on the east of Jerusalem. And from there they can look down over the city. And the disciples have presumably heard this lament of Jesus, him weeping over the city, if you like. And as they're on the Mount of Olives on the east side, looking down over the city, and they see the temple buildings rebuilt by Herod the Great. Enormous buildings, massive stones. And look what it says in in chapter 24. Uh, It's there in verse 1. Jesus left the temple, was walking away, when his disciples came to him to call his attention to its buildings. What, What they see is the splendor and the glory of this great city, the temple. What they see is 2,000 years of history. And they hear Jesus say, your house will be left to you desolate. What they see is the glory of this great city. And they point out to Jesus, isn't it great, Jerusalem? Look at the fantastic temple. This is our heritage. Look at the stones. And, and from the Mount of Olives, some people say, from the Mount of Olives, if you look down, it almost looks like it's bathed in gold. The grandeur, the majesty. And then Jesus in chapter 24 hits them with a devastating comment. Verse 2. Do you see all these things, he asked? I tell you the truth. Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. I I don't know about you, but (laughs) that strikes me as a pretty... That strikes me like a comment that would smack you right between the eyes. Jesus has made this lament. The disciples are kind of, but surely, surely, this glorious, amazing, majestic scene will last forever, won't it? And Jesus hits them right between the eyes. Not one stone will be left on another. You can't really miss the contrast. Jesus almost reluctantly pronounces judgment on the city And they can't quite understand how all this glorious, majestic history will pass away. And Jesus says, no, one day there'll be nothing left here. Of course, Jerusalem's quite significant as a city. We've no time to go into all the implications of that. But but what I want to try and underline from chapter 24 is the idea of something so glorious that stands under judgment and you could apply this idea in so many ways you could apply it to the world as a whole couldn't you the world as a whole the complexity of it the beauty of it the history of it the achievements of the human race it is all so amazing isn't it glorious and you but can you hear jesus words ringing out over that world How often have I longed to gather you together, to love you, to rule you, to protect you and care for you, but you were not willing. Your house is left you desolate. You could apply it to human beings, couldn't you? How incredible people are. What a great joy and delight it is to be alive. What potential there is in human life, what creativity there is, what passion there can be, what strength endurance and you could hear the voice of Jesus saying how often have I longed for you personally but you would not and that human potential is wasted because you've 
you've not just missed me, but you've chosen something else instead of me. You've built your incredible life on broken promises when I was there all the time, longing to do you good. Anyway, here's the glory of a great city. Jesus says, How often have I longed to gather you all, and you were not willing. Jesus says it's all heading for desolation. Now, if you were there and you heard Jesus say these words, and it's confusing, isn't it? Glorious scene, heading for desolation. How can these things be? Well, the disciples go on to ask a great question. Um, Verse 3 of chapter 24, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately and they asked a great question. Maybe this is the question we would have asked. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? That's not one question, is it, actually? That's three questions. When will these things happen? In other words, you're talking about Jerusalem and nothing being left here. When will that happen? When will the end of the age happen? And what about you, Lord? When are you going to come back? I wonder whether they something twigged for them when Jesus says, your house has left you desolate and you won't see me again. They're making some connections here. Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. Jesus is going to disappear. What on earth is going to happen here? When will these things happen? When will the end of the age be? And when will you come back? J.C. Ryle Bible commentator says they're interested in three things the destruction of Jerusalem, the end of the age and the personal reappearance of the Christ it really is a great question it's a great three part question we're interested in now we're interested in then and we're interested in you Lord I wonder whether they think all of this is going to happen at the same time somehow anyway you can read chapter 24 the point I wanted to make we could spend ages on this The point I wanted to make is that chapter 24 is profound, totally profound, because Jesus answers them on all three points. He covers Jerusalem, he covers the end of the age, and he speaks of his own personal and visible return. And what I I wanted to do, very briefly, was just summarise the key themes. We haven't got time, I wish we had. Let me give you five key themes from chapter 24 that will inform the story of the ten bridesmaids. Number one, Kingdoms will rise and fall. Jesus, look at Jesus' words here. In verse 6, you will hear of wars and rumours of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There'll be famines, earthquakes in various places, All these are the beginning of birth pains. What's Jesus saying? In this world, there is going to be trouble. Don't be surprised at the successive waves of history. All kinds of philosophies are going to come into fashion and go out of fashion. Empires are going to rise and fall. I... Can I say something else here as well, just as a little aside? I I meet many Christians who are are overly optimistic 
and I don't want to, I don't want you to misunderstand me here. They're overly optimistic. They, they dream of this kind of glorious age in the future when everything's going to be much better than it is now. Jesus, I don't know where people get this idea from because what Jesus promises here seems to me to be the reality of what we all experience. You pick up a newspaper and there's trouble in the world. Don't be overly optimistic about peace or purity being widespread. Jesus here with his disciples predicts exactly the kind of things that we see even in our modern world. But I want you to notice verse 8. Is it verse 8? I need better glasses here. Verse 8. All these things are the beginning of birth pains. That is a very intriguing comment, isn't it? Because when difficult things happen, the sense is, it's a downward spiral. Captain Mannering, we're all doomed. That's not a very good Scottish accent, is it? We're all doomed. Captain, uh, the, the the, the idea is bad things happen and the world is on a downward, hopeless spiral. But Jesus says, these things are the beginning of birth pains. These successive waves of history, it's like the world's in labour. The world isn't on a downward spiral. The pain is real. The difficulties are very severe. The angst of war and terror and famine are all devastating, but out of these ruins will one day come something beautiful and new and lasting. Isn't it incredible that Jesus talks about these difficulties being like birth pains? So that's the first thing, kingdoms will rise and fall. Second thing, confusion will be widespread. Jesus here uses some Religious language, I suppose, verse, verse 10. Uh, at that time, many will turn away from the faith, betray and hate each other. And verse 11, many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. And because of the increase in wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. Lawlessness will increase. False prophets will come, claiming that they've got all the answers. Jesus says to them that they'll be hated because of him. Maybe they'll share in something of his emotion as he wept over Jerusalem. Maybe they would have the sense too of knowing what it would be like to long for someone and yet for them to be unwilling. I think what's really striking about the words of Jesus here is how much he nails the noisiness of life. So much noise, everybody clamouring to be heard. Even in our modern world, technology now makes the world so small, doesn't it? We see so many different things. We wonder how anyone can be certain of anything. Whatever you do believe, there'll always be someone somewhere in the world who say, "Ah, oh, you've got all that wrong. Confusion will be widespread. Thirdly, very quickly, Jesus says the gospel, the good news about Jesus will be preached all around the world. Verse 14, Jesus says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. All the while, all the while this trouble is going on, there are little pockets of faithful believers who continue in the middle of all this reality 
to declare the love of Jesus and the kingdom of God to those around them. And what a great miracle that is in such a world that God preserves his people and ensures that the gospel is proclaimed all around the world. The fourth thing I wanted you to notice was that Jesus here is very practical. People will look in the wrong places for relief, particularly when trouble comes. Look at what Jesus says in verse 4. Watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I'm the Christ and they will deceive many. There's no sense in which Jesus wants believers to be gullible. And there is a sense, isn't there, when trouble comes, hey, come and listen to me, follow me. I'll give you some relief, I'll give you some answers. What Jesus is saying is, listen, as this history unfolds, don't fall for pseudo-Christs or mini-Christs who promise the earth but can't deliver. Jesus' advice to his disciples and to you is, be careful who you listen to, who you believe in. See to it that no one leads you astray. And over the, the next column there, verse 23, Jesus repeats the same idea. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear. They'll perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. There will be people, there will even be Christian leaders who will do amazing things. They'll impress you with their eloquence, their skill, their popularity, but don't let them lead you away from Jesus. Especially when trouble comes. And then, fifthly, Jesus um, says, when the Christ comes, when I come again, you'll know. You'll know. Look at verse 30. At that time, the the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other the coming of the Christ will be sudden it will be glorious and notice that it will be very different to his first coming won't it have you got somewhere for us to stay no it's full but we've got a little stable on the back here if you don't mind putting your newborn baby in a little food trough be very different to his first coming humble poor when Jesus comes again he will come on the clouds with great majesty and notice that he will take care of his own beloved people he'll gather them all those who are waiting for him and he will take care of them there's so much more we could say and there is a lot of crazy stuff talked about this chapter and end time stuff but I wanted to just summarise those five key themes don't miss the big ideas Um, and what what is Jesus' application that's the main thing I wanted to get to 
what is, what is the application of all this that Jesus makes to them? I want to say it is surely be prepared. Look at verse 44. This is what Jesus kind of gets to as he's talking to them on the side of the Mount of Olives there. You also must be ready. Why? Because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Jesus says in verse 36 that no one knows what date that will be. This this is what drives me nuts with people who get into the end times. So many Christians, oh, oh, we know this is going to happen and then that's going to happen and then Jesus is going to come back. It says in the Bible here, no one knows what date that will be. Do you remember, was a guy in America last year who predicted when the end of the world would come? He was a minister of a church. I don't think he's ever read that chapter. If, if he knew, <laughs> when the Bible says no one knows, I don't, I don't know what planet these guys are on. There's some wacko jackos out there, that's for sure. Jesus says no one knows when he will return. Life will be going on. And suddenly he will appear. In the rest of um, this chapter... I think I have another slide there that says three comparisons. There we go. Jesus makes three comparisons. He first of all talks about the days of Noah in the Old Testament. You remember old Noah built a boat? Everyone laughed at him. What are you doing, Noah, building a boat? Pull the other one, mate. And and Jesus says here, for in the days before the flood, people were eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, right up until the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That's how it would be at the coming of the Son of Man. The point is, it'll be sudden. In verse 43, Jesus uses a second comparison of a burglar or a house thief. So imagine you own a house and the burglar emails you or puts on Facebook, on Tuesday night, 3 o'clock in the morning, I'm going to come and nick all your stuff. You'll be standing behind the curtains with a massive big club, won't you, waiting for the guy to come and break in so you can give him a good crack and tell him to get lost. No thief ever tells the house owner when he's going to come and steal. Jesus is not saying that he's a thief. He's making the point that no one knows. So, be alert. Be prepared. Be ready. The third image he uses in verse 45 and following is the idea of a servant whose master gives him, he delegates to his servant the running of his affairs and then he goes away and the servant, while he's waiting for the master, my master, he's staying away a long time, he's not coming back and he begins to start punching up his fellow servants, eating and drinking all the master's stuff and then the master does come back when he doesn't expect him and it's very sudden. Three comparisons, it's all, the point is when, the, when Christ returns, it will be unexpected. And the big question is, are you ready? In chapter 25, I promised you would get there. Chapter 25, there are actually three parables. Verse 1 to 13, the parable of the ten virgins. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like. Verse 14, there's a second parable of the talents. We looked at a very similar one in Luke's Gospel, the parable of the miners. Uh, again, the kingdom of heaven will be like a man going on a journey. And then in verse 31, there's a parable about the, 
the world's being split into sheep and goats. These three parables, I suppose, all emphasise how we should wait in the waiting part. We should be waiting, working, and investing generously in the cause of Christ. Notice there's no doubt about the coming. It's not if, but when. The bridegroom will come. The master will return. The issue in all of these stories is are you ready? I, I'm probably an old, old romantic. I, I don't, have you ever seen the film Robin Hood with Errol Flynn in it? The 1940s one. Have you ever seen that? Yeah? Swashbuckling guy. He's got a little tash. You, 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 you might remember it if you saw it. There's, a, there's an amazing part of the end of the film. I was trying to find it to show you a little clip. Because the whole point of Robin Hood is that the king's brother, is it King John? He doesn't think King Richard's coming back. And he just rules with an iron fist. And Robin Hood's going around, thieving from the rich and giving to the poor. And, and, and he's really driven by a low to his king. And there's a scene towards the end of the film where King Richard does come back, but he's in disguise. And there's a beautiful moment. I don't know whether they're in some sort of, I don't know, a pub or something or banqueting hall. And the king stands up and he takes his hood off. And the whole group just kind of bow. You know, the king, wow, king. They thought it was a tramp or something. And King John, obviously, terror. You know, what on earth have I been doing? Fighting against my brother and here he is. But the thrill for Robin Hood and his merry man that the king they love has come. And all the waiting is over. It's a great clip. Well, that, that's the essence of these stories, isn't it? To be ready for the return of the king. Not to be fighting against him, but to be ready when he returns. Well, let's very quickly, we're not going to spend as long on the story. It's, I mean, it's a pretty obvious short story, isn't it? I want to make some applications in a moment. But let's uh, just look at this strange story. On the surface, there are a lot of problems with this little story. What kind of wedding is it where the bridegroom keeps everyone waiting so long? In our culture, it's the bride, isn't it, who we're all waiting for? In this culture, it was very different. Why is it when the bridegroom finally comes that the five wise bridesmaids are so selfish and say, you can't have any of our oil? What's that all about? And where do the five foolish ones think they're going to find an oil dealer? When it's midnight, what shop's going to be open? They see... And when they come back and find the door shut, why does the guy who's on the door not say, oh, go on, man, I'll let you in? It seems very harsh. And, and one of the key questions is, why is it that verse 13, Jesus' application is, keep watch, in other words, stay awake, when all ten of them, the wise and the foolish, fell asleep? And what in the world does a story like this have to do with us? Oh. So there's a few problems there. I think the issue is, the main point, is being ready. It's very different to our weddings, isn't it? Um, I think in these days, I've been trying to read up on this this week, the idea would be that all the wedding party would be at the bride's house and the groom would come to the bride's house to be married. 
these weddings would last for days but the groom would come to the bride's house maybe in this case he's traveling from quite a distance and everyone's waiting they're all waiting at the house they've all got their glad rags on they're all there waiting for the groom to, to come and the tradition would be for a group of young girls bridesmaids selected from the village to form a sort of welcome party Often this would happen in the evening, hence the need for lamps. And their job would be, when someone looking through the window sees the groom's party coming, the cry would ring out and these girls would go out to meet the groom as he comes to the house. So you've got this picture in your mind. And they would go out with their lamps and they would usher the groom into the wedding party. So it's very different to a sort of modern uh, wedding, you know, in our, in our culture. The lamps presumably just reading up on this again are like little clay bowls and the idea would be you'd put a bit of cloth in there as a sort of wick you'd put a little bit of oil in the bowl the whole bowl would be on a stick and then you would light the wick and obviously the oil would soak and it would just work like a, a sort of torch the ten Bridesmaids all look the same. But there's something different about them. And verse 2, Jesus makes a, you know, he kind of steers it towards the foolish. Five were foolish, five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but didn't take any oil. Often when I've thought about this story, I wondered whether they had like extra oil. But when rereading it this week, the foolish ones took the lamps but just didn't take an oil. It seems like they had the stick, the lamp, the cloth, the matches, <laughs> but they just haven't remembered to put any oil in there. They've got their best dresses on, the groom's on his way, but they just have completely neglected to bring any oil. I don't think the lamps need to be on while they're waiting in the house. And the reference later to the wise, when the cry rings out at midnight, all, the, all these girls wake up, they trim their lamps, and the foolish ones at that point realise, I've got no oil. So they lit the clock, and maybe the clock smoulders for a bit, and then goes out, give us some of your oil, will you? I've forgotten to bring some oil. This is a shame culture. And it was a great honour to be performing this role. And what a shame it would be to let down the groom, the bride, the other wedding guests. They're all there in the house, they fall asleep. At midnight the cry rings out, here's the groom, come out to meet him. You, you can imagine all the bustle, can't you? Please give us some of your oil. And the wise, the, the five wise ones, they are in character, aren't they? No, they replied, because there may not be enough for both us and you, and we've got to go out and then come back in without our lamps going out. It's kind of, they're planning ahead, aren't they? They're in character. You need to go and get your own oil and hope that you'll be here in time. And while they're on their way, the groom arrives the five wise ones go in, the door's shut and then the other five turn up presumably with the oil that they don't need now 
and the doors locked. It's a very stark story, isn't it? Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I'll tell you the truth, I don't know you. How can you be a bridesmaid if you don't bring any oil for the only job that you've got to do? And Jesus applies it, therefore keep watch because you don't know the day or the hour. I suppose that implies that Jesus is the bridegroom and, and these bridesmaids are people who are waiting for Jesus to come. Well, let, let me close by just giving you four applications to think about from this little story, okay? Um, and then we're done. There's, there's a lot of crazy stuff spoken about this story as well. Sometimes when, when people come to Jesus' parables, they try to make everything in the parable mean something. And, and you get yourself all kind of mixed up when you try and do that. But let, let's, let's just draw four applications. Number one, um, Jesus will sort out the real from the pretend. I think that's relevant to this story. When the bridegroom came, he, f- he finds a mixed bag, doesn't he? And I think when Jesus comes, he will find people who to all intents and purposes look like believers, but some will be prepared and some won't. There's kind of a... I don't know. There's a question there, isn't there? Are you the real deal? What I, what I find very interesting about this is that Jesus here is speaking privately on the Mount of Olives to his disciples. This is not directed at the wider crowds. This is directed to people who are following Jesus, his disciples. And I suppose in the story we've alluded to it already, having a lamp and some fuel was part of what it meant to be a bridesmaid. If you neglect that, you're, fail, you're failing to be the real deal. The other five might as well have turned up in fancy dress or not bothered to turn up at all. They only had one job and they couldn't do that. The point is, I think, that if you're a bridesmaid, you'll do what bridesmaids do. You'll get ready, you'll have everything you need at hand. Nothing will be left to chance. I I think one of the things that we could say about this story is that the same is true. If you are claiming to be a Christian then you'll do the things that Jesus does. Your genuineness, or the genuineness of your profession of faith, will be shown by what you do. By being in it for the long haul. By getting on with the business of actually being a Christian. And I think the lesson there is that Jesus doesn't call us to a kind of one-off decision. This story isn't about signing a card or putting our hand up or Jesus is calling people to a lifestyle of being what they claim to be a discipleship lifestyle so I think the first thing we can say is if you want to be ready for Christ's return the idea here is for you to believe in him and to live a life that pleases him What an awesome thing it will be to think, yeah, I'm going to be okay when Jesus comes. 
And Jesus says these words, I don't know, I, I don't know you. You weren't the real deal. You were pretending. It's a very, I, I think this is a warning for people who are claiming faith when they have no real faith. I think that's a really serious thing, isn't it? The second application is that you can't rely on someone else to be prepared. Do you think that comes across in this story? Please give us some of your oil. No, there isn't enough for us and for you. You can't be prepared for someone else, can you? Or, if you're not prepared, you can't rely on someone else who is prepared. They had no idea, did they, that it was up to them? They were just being sloppy. And, and I think that's a real lesson for us, you know, that when it, when it comes to our relationship with God, it is very individual, isn't it? No one can have faith for you. You can't do it by proxy. It's kind of, it is great to meet together corporately as Christian believers in a Christian family, isn't it? But you can't rely on a parent or a friend or someone else. You have to personally come and do business with Jesus. You can't rely on someone else. Third thing is that you need to be ready now. The main point of the parable, I think, is the surprise element, isn't it, of the coming of the bridegroom. And Jesus drives that point home several times through these two chapters. And he says, his application in verse 13 is, therefore keep watch because you do not know the date, the day or the hour when the bridegroom will come. They had no idea the call would be so sudden. They had no idea that when the call came, there would be no time to then put things right that were wrong. As a parent, it's always interesting, isn't it, that kids just know how to put things off, don't they? I mean, some of my kids are here and all, but I'll do it in a minute. I'll do it tomorrow. I'm just busy at the moment. I've got homework to do. And you never want to do your homework when I'm asking you to do your homework, but it's a good excuse when I'm asking you to do something else that you don't want to do. But more often than not, these minor things don't matter, do they? But can I say this? Preachers have this as well. Because part of a preacher's job is to urge you to be ready. And you can do it as well. You can say, oh, I'll do it in a minute. I, I can hear what you're saying. It makes a lot of sense. And I do need to get around to doing this. But I'm really busy at the moment. I'll do it tomorrow. Or next week or in a minute. I'll do it in a bit. Listen, nothing is more important, is it, than this? And nothing is more important than sorting this out now. Not tomorrow or next week or next year. What do I mean? I mean, I mean for a person to come and entrust themselves to Jesus. To be humble. And to confess your need of forgiveness. I mean for you to come and acknowledge him as your king. I mean for you to commit yourself to being his disciple. I really mean for you to do business with Jesus and to do it now because later or tomorrow may be too late. Going back to the start of the story, don't, don't let it be the case that Jesus says over you, how often have I longed to gather you like a mother hen gathers her chicks and you wouldn't. 
because he was saying, I'll do it in a minute. And here's the fourth thing, the last thing, and then we're done. Live as people of hope. <laughs> it occurred to me right at the end of my preparation this week that there's a famous like song that people sometimes sing. We, I don't think we've sung it in this church. Give me oil in my lamp, keep me burning. You know that song? I can remember singing that at school. And it suddenly occurred to me, I'm not sure if that song's based on this passage. Give me oil in my lamp, keep me burning. The whole context of this whole chapter and the question Jesus is asked by the disciples and the answers he gives is all about Jesus saying, see these stones? There's not going to be one left on top of the other. It's all going to be gone one day. And often we're faced with what just, when you hear Jesus say that about Jerusalem, you know, often we can read the papers, can't we? We think about we talk with work colleagues and we think, what is the world coming to? What's it going to be like for our kids and their kids and their kids' kids? Where's it all going to end? And if, if we're a Christian believer, we might say, when is Jesus going to come? And the hardest thing in all the world is waiting, isn't it? But in the meantime, just to kind of pick up on the metaphor, if you're a Christian believer today, your lamp does not burn in vain. Live in hope. Trust in Jesus. Love one another. Be committed to encouraging one another as you wait for his appearing. Against all the darkness, injustice and suffering that we see every day and experience in our own lives often, remember this, that the Lord is coming. And don't give in to despair or fear. You know the end of the story. You know the final chapter. So learn to live today in the light of the end of the story and in a culture that struggles with recession, terrorism, poverty, addiction, and breakdown. Be men and women of faith, courage, and compassion. You are well qualified to be people of hope. Christ has come. Christ has died. Christ has risen. And praise him, Christ will come again. Are you ready?